Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When children argue, they lobby their parents to choose a side. An unwise parent intervenes to solve the conflict, deciding who is right and who is wrong. This parent is unwise because no matter how well-reasoned the discussion, the intervention teaches the child a horrible lesson. When you have a dispute with another person, instead of humbling yourself and negotiating a compromise, appeal to a higher authority. If the authority sides with you, you have the power to impose your will on your neighbor. In contrast, a wise parent intervenes only when circumstances demand action. And if they intervene, it is to hold both parties accountable. Under the care of a wise parent, nobody wins the argument. Instead, each child looks to their own mistakes and embraces their sibling in friendship. Acting like children, adults try to use the law the same way children use their parents. If I can just get the law on my side, then I can impose my will on others. That's exactly why the Pharisees ask Jesus about divorce. Like a wise parent, Jesus turns the question against the accuser. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19, verses 1 to 9. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 336 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have been talking about the flock in chapter 18 with an underlying assumption, namely that the flock is analogous to the household. When we talk about a household in the New Testament, by now you should know that the framework is that of the Roman household. So it's not shocking as we transition to chapter 19. And remember, these chapters were imposed on the text. They are not chapter and verse markers placed by the authors. So you're not really moving to a new chapter. It's a continuation of the same argument. It makes sense, in any case, that as we flow through Matthew, we go from the lost sheep to the sheep that wants to leave the flock by choosing not to obey the voice of the shepherd, to now discussing someone who wants to leave a marriage. This discussion of who is in and who is out is essential. Who's in the flock? Who's out of the flock? Who's in the marriage? Who's out of the marriage? Under what circumstances can you leave the flock? Under what circumstances are you allowed another to leave the flock? Under what circumstances are you bound to bring someone who leaves the flock back? This is very important when talking about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven cannot be compulsory. It's always according to the conscience of the individual. If you want to be in, you can be in, 
as long as you follow the rules of the kingdom. If you don't want to be in, goodbye. No one's going to force you. If it looks like you're leaving the flock, you're leaving the kingdom, then someone is bound to come to you and say, hey, by the way, I don't know if you're aware of this, but you're leaving the path. And then if the person still wants to continue on their own way, then you bring a couple more as witnesses to make sure that you're describing the correct path. There is no compulsion. You try to correct them, but if they choose to go another way, you aren't allowed to do anything other than let them be. Conforming one's will to the will of God is the central point, but the yoke that God places on your neck through Torah is not compulsory, but once you take it on, you now have work to do according to the will of the one who put that yoke on your neck. In 1 Corinthians, Paul repeatedly explains to his students that in any situation— the rule is for you. It's not for everybody else. It applies to you. And the answer is the cross, which means you have to lose in every situation. It's the most ruthless and at once ingenious argument in the history of wisdom literature. What Christians like to do when they talk about something that is marked as sin in the Torah, they like to talk about, okay, so what should we tell people to do or not to do, and how can we apply this? And then they get into battles in the secular court. All the Christians who want to take every issue to the Supreme Court are disobeying Paul and 1 Corinthians. Let me say it again, because I know it's going to take some people a minute to process this. All of the Christians who want to bring moral questions to the Supreme Court are disobeying St. Paul and 1 Corinthians. It's a very serious matter. Why do you have to go to a secular court when all you have to do is worry about yourself and make sure you submit to the gospel of the cross? When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all. Here we go. Tell us, Jesus, so that we can align ourselves with the correct political party and gather enough votes to press the Supreme Court to make a law, and we want to make sure the law we make is correct so we know how to tell people what to do with a clear conscience. Or, in the case of the Pharisees, we want to know exactly what's correct so that we can look down our noses at the Gentiles. You know, the Gentiles that we were just commanded to evangelize vis-a-vis -vis your explication of Leviticus. Matthew did not need to tell us that they were tempting him because you can tell from their language, is it allowed, existing? Is it okay to do this? Is it possible? Remember, we talked about Peter and how Peter was using the law to get himself off the hook. This is a typical Pharisee move. Use the law to get yourself off the hook. Use the law to see what the limit of your responsibility is, as opposed to where your responsibility begins. The Pharisees want to start this conversation around marriage and what a husband's duty is towards his wife. Where does a man's duty towards his wife end. 
At what point is the husband no longer responsible for his wife? In the same way that Peter is saying, what is the limit to which I no longer have to forgive somebody? When do I get to cut somebody off? Now the Pharisees are saying, when does a husband get to cut his wife off? There's a pattern here that Jesus is trying to speak against. At what point do I no longer have a duty towards my neighbor? Where does my duty end? When you ask about the border of your duty, you're asking for an excuse to harm another person. And Matthew, in as much as he's dealing with the Old Testament, is also dealing with the letters of Paul. For the biblical school, your conscience is never clear. There is never a line past which you're excused to start pounding on your neighbor. And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. There are a couple of things going on of note in this passage from Genesis. The first is that the Hebrew, ehad, is not used to say one as if there's some sort of blending. It means at one in the original usage, meaning that the two submit to one another. The way Paul talks about the household in Ephesians chapter 5, they're at one because of duty and obedience and deference towards Christ, which leads to deference towards one another. That is the household of fidelity in the prophets, where there's obedience, meaning obedience to the Torah. The other interesting thing, of course, about Genesis is that Typically, it's the bride who moves into the groom's household, his tribe, his clan. But here, Genesis turns it on its head. A man has to leave his father and his mother and join his wife. The phrase in Genesis is about submission and duty and obedience, and it's novel in the ancient world here in Genesis that the writer would force the man to submit to the wife. For Matthew, the question at stake is duty. If the man is faithful to the law, he doesn't go with the cultural norm and enrich his own household. He has to humble himself and submit to his wife. He's leaving behind dynasty, not building dynasty, when he becomes at one for the sake of God's wisdom, not for the sake of his own legacy. These Pharisees are asking about divorce, and Jesus immediately shifts the conversation to Genesis, to the text. The assumption about what is a human's duty, the Pharisees try to make into a philosophical legal question. Let's talk about rights. But Jesus does not allow it to go that way. He directs it immediately to the text. Have you not read? That's how he starts. Have you not read? If you're going to have this discussion, you need to read. The man has left his family. The two have become at one with each other. You must do everything in your power to make sure that you stay at one with the other, which ultimately applies to both the men and the women. But here Jesus is applying it to the man because the question is a Pharisee asking about the duty of a man towards his wife. The first thing is that you're at one. Jesus immediately undermines the question, well, where does a man's duty end? 
And Jesus says, well, didn't you read? They're one. They're at one. It doesn't sound like there's any end to the duty, actually. It sounds like once you're one, there's nothing to argue about anymore. So why are you talking about when should the argument end? Because according to Scripture, there's no argument. You're at one with each other. You're one flesh. If you're together, why are we talking about when you're no longer together? I don't see where you're getting that from, Pharisees. By rooting it in this text, he undermines the question, and this is how Jesus will function. And this is what's so important. I had a discussion with some people recently. If you have a question about your life and about your experience, hey, I experienced X, so I'm going to go to the Bible, I'm going to read and find places that talk about X. In my opinion, you're doing it wrong. Instead, you say, you read Scripture, and you read about why, and then you say, okay, where is why in my life? You have to be careful that you're reading Scripture and you're understanding Scripture so that you interpret it in the correct way, other than going and basing it on your life experience and finding proof texts that will help you out in a time of need, like they have in the preamble in certain published Bibles in English that have, oh, when you're feeling sad, look at this psalm, and when you're feeling happy, go look at this verse from Paul. You can't do that. You have to read Scripture first before you even start the question, because this is what happened with the Pharisees. They asked a question, and immediately Jesus undermined the question simply by quoting Scripture. So they are no longer two, but one flesh, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. The key here is that the union is established by the man's obedience to go against his own dynasty, his own family, in order to establish a union under the authority of God's instruction. That is how God joined them together. It's not magic. If the man insisted that she join his household and leave her parents, then God didn't establish the union. It's critical that we understand this, that it is only established by God when you do what he says. We have this tradition, but it's not unique to our church. There are many wisdom traditions where you have a master and a disciple, whether it be in a monastic setting or some other educational setting, where the ground rules have to be followed. Either you listen to your master or you don't. And if you don't listen to the master, he's not your master anymore. Simple. So in Genesis, the presumption is that God established the union because the man submitted to his wisdom and obeyed and gave up his power in order to form a union with this woman. And this obedience is precisely what's tested in divorce. If the Bible's talking about marriage as something that God brought together, that following God's wisdom and God's will and submitting to God's will created, made happen— Why did you ask about divorce again? (laughs) This is the problem. I mean, he really goes at them at the level of the question. The question is invalid. Under what circumstances does a man's duty towards his wife end? And Jesus brings up the question, end? When I read scripture, I don't see anything about duty ending at all. Just like when Peter said, is it seven times that he sins against me that I can cut him off? And Jesus says 70 times 7, and then tells him a parable that really puts him on the hook. 
our duty towards others never ends. If you want to be a member of this kingdom, of course, if you want to leave the kingdom, go do your own thing, just like you were saying. If you're the student of a teacher and you don't like the teacher, you drop out. You don't tell the teacher to do things differently. That's silly. Leave. The professor's not going to go and hunt you down and bring you back unless he wants to. But if you choose voluntarily to leave, he can't force you to come back. There's no compulsion. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it has not been this way. Let's be clear. Because of the hardness of your hearts, Moses permitted you to only inspect the leper so many times. But we all know that he was forcing you to do it because ultimately you have to keep doing it to save the leper. Let's be clear. Moses said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, not so that you would take a tooth and an eye, but because he knew you were a vengeful people and he had to set a limit. If you go around taking an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, you're disobeying Moses, who said that vengeance belongs only to God. Let's be serious. The Old Testament is just honest about how rotten we are, and the New Testament is sick and tired of our rottenness and just sets the bar the way it was intended from the beginning, the way it was always set. This is the point Jesus is making. You still haven't heard what Moses said, so let me make it plain for you. You are hard of heart, and the you here is critical because the commandment about divorce is for the one who claims that the Torah is still their master. In the Law of Moses, as in 1 Corinthians, if your partner does not submit to the law, the law doesn't apply to them. It applies to you. This is so important because of what I said at the beginning. You want to make out of God's law, your law, so that you can become self-righteous. Everybody wants to be a vigilante. No one wants to be crucified. And the novelty of Scripture is that it disallows the vigilante. It disallows the citizen arrest. It disallows your belief in the rightness of law. Just listen to how people talk today. When a certain class of people is at risk, people brag about how they follow the law. Why should those people not have to follow the law? This, friends, is blasphemy. You don't understand how it's blasphemy. Let me explain. It's because you are building yourself up as righteous on the basis of Caesar's law. At least the Pharisees were trying to do it on the basis of the law of Moses. 
but you're telling me so-and-so should be thrown in jail on the basis of Caesar's law, and you're bragging that you didn't break that law. Is that going to be your conversation on that day before the terrible and dread judgment seat of Christ? You're going to say, well, it was legal in the U.S., or it was illegal in the U.S., or I lobbied to make it illegal in the U.S. You think that's going to work? The reference has to be God's law. It is his instruction that establishes its fidelity in you, not in your spouse. And this is very important for the next verse, because in 1 Corinthians, Paul is clear. You can't divorce your spouse, but your spouse is permitted to divorce you if they're not under God's instruction. If they are, then you can at least attempt to hold them accountable. But if they choose to walk away from it, you can't compel them. Your fidelity is towards the law, which gives you no choices. There is no choice for the believer. It's amazing the way that the Pharisees twist this teaching. They started the question with putting away one's wife. Now they mention, why did Moses then command to give a divorce certificate and to put her away? There were already men who were putting away their wives, just like there were already men who were taking vengeance. And there had to be a limit put on this because they were already straying from the path. Moses intervened so they would wander less. And the certificate of divorce was key. A man could just start ignoring his wife, not taking care of her children, not giving her a nice place to live, not fulfilling his duty towards a wife. But the wife was stuck because the wife belonged to that husband. What Moses forced was this certificate which meant that they are no longer married, and now she was allowed to marry somebody else. The reason for the certificate is because you were already hard in your hearts, and you were already saying that your duty towards her was done. But Moses says, if your duty towards her is done, you have to make it official, and you have to declare it in front of the congregation So at least she can be free. She can potentially go and marry someone else or at least go back to her father's house. This is how it worked. So it was for the sake of the woman who was being mistreated that this was imposed on the man to say, if you're going to stop your duty, if you must take vengeance, there's a limit. You must declare in front of the entire congregation, legally, your duty is no longer there. This does not follow with what the law said, but at least God can protect the divorcee in this circumstance. It's not so that the husband can do what he wants. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The limit here is being set on the husband, but... As we learn from the Apostle Paul, it cuts both ways. If you, as a husband, submit to the law of Moses, and that law establishes your household, then fidelity to the household is fidelity to God, which parallels the teaching of the prophets. The immorality is disobedience to the Torah. It's straying away from the household. And Paul definitely applies this in 1 Corinthians with respect to the household of the church. 
And he spends time talking about this question of immorality. And the fidelity is always towards God's teaching. And we've explained in the past how the example of immorality is a beautiful teaching mechanism because when you're unfaithful in human terms, it destroys the social contract and causes harm to everyone in the household. That's why it's such a great metaphor for disobedience. But this is not about sexuality per se. We have to keep making that point. So here, Matthew is telling you that if your spouse doesn't want to listen to the voice of the shepherd, you have to give them every chance, as we've been saying all along in Matthew, to remain in the household. But if they want to leave, tough luck. You must remain faithful to the Torah, which means that you can't compel them or force them. This text is never explained correctly because people zero in the way Peter zeroes in on Leviticus to try to find exactly what the Pharisees are trying to find, which is a legitimate case for divorce. There is no legitimate case for divorce. You still want to be justified. But the text isn't interested in the legitimate case, so relax. Everybody lives in sin. Period. The text is interested in putting guardrails around you as the addressee so that you, despite your sinfulness, remain useful to God's wisdom and its cause. The fidelity towards the instruction of God is what is at stake. Otherwise, the marriage is just nothing in terms of what the Bible cares about. The whole discussion of marriage culturally is just lost because the only reason marriage is of concern for those who are subject to Scripture is as a keros, an opportunity to advance the cause of the gospel. What do you think the commandment to be fruitful and multiply is all about? Pornia, like you said, fornication or immorality, pornia in Greek is precisely the image that's used in Hosea, which we talked about a long time ago, which will be in my upcoming book. When the wife of the Lord wants to go after Baals, she's allowed to do so. He's not going to recognize her children, and he's not going to give her everything, because if she wants to leave the house, she leaves the house. He's not going to force her to be with him. Oftentimes when people read the prophets, they misunderstand because it seems that in the prophets, God is punishing the people for leaving. He doesn't punish the people for leaving. If they want to leave his house, they leave his house. But in his house is protection and provision. But if you leave the house, then you leave the protection and the provision. And then you get scared because things look really bad, but that's because you weren't recognizing what God had been giving you all along as this husband. The only reason you're allowed to give a writ of divorce, a certificate of divorce to your wife, is if she insists on leaving the house and going to another house. The only one in the marriage who's allowed to split the marriage is the other one. It's not you. You have to be the one who continues in your duty. And if the other, if your wife, wants to go with another husband and wants to go and become part of another household, that is the only time 
that your duty ends is if she no longer wants you to perform your duty. You are not allowed to compel and you're not allowed to send away. You can't force them in. You can't force them out. You must follow the will of God in any case. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.